Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles if you would. We're going to be taking a different route. We've been working our way through the Luke's Gospel, but now we're going to take a look at John chapter 19. 28 through 30, as we look at the divine intention of the atonement. That's kind of a big title there, kind of confusing, but we think of that. See him in Jerusalem. See him walking towards Jerusalem. See him hanging on the cross. As we come to celebrate the resurrection and observe Easter, and typically we think of all the frivolous things that happen with Easter, right? All the Easter bunny, all the different types of things, things that are going on. But there's one question we need to ask when we think of Easter. What leads one man to die for another? What leads one man to die for another? Well, let's just ask the person, is there someone that you would give your life for voluntarily, willingly? And you might say, yeah, I would give it to my family or I'd give it to my child. And of course we say that, but we've never been put in that position, have we? We might have sacrificed for our children, sacrificed a meal, maybe sacrificed some money or time and energy, but to really, truly die for someone. Now think about, would you die for someone that was ungodly? Would you die for someone that hates you, that's rejected you? That's what we have here this morning that we're celebrating. Someone who voluntarily went to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him for you and I. Now you might think, well, yeah, I'm worth dying for. And I'm sure you are in your own way. But as we look at scripture, we find that maybe we're not so worthy after all. What would be their intention to die for someone else. Maybe it's to save someone else's life. Maybe to give them a little bit longer to live. Who knows what that might be. But what are they hoping to accomplish? What is their intention? Over the past few months, we've been reading of the divine determination of Jesus to travel Jerusalem. From Luke chapter 9, verse 51, in our regular services, we've been looking at Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, and he has a divine determination to go there no matter what. He knows that waiting for him is a divine appointment, that he will die at Jerusalem, at the cross. Let me ask you, if if someone were to tell you, I know exactly when and where and how you were going to die, would you try to avoid those places, those circumstances at all cost? I think most of us would to a degree. But Jesus is headstrong. Knowing that his time is short, he has been wisely spending his time teaching and instructing his followers what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to be a follower of Christ. And along the way, during his travels, he's continued his ministry of setting at liberty those who were oppressed. He's setting them at liberty through the preaching of the good news of the gospel, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God and performing natural and supernatural miracles. Last week we saw that nothing would stop Jesus from his divine appointment, neither the resistance of the religious leaders, the rejection of the crowds, and by the now you know that I have some Baptists, so you're going to see a lot of alliteration going on here, nor receiving death threats from Herod is going to deter him from getting to Jerusalem at his appointed time. Last week we considered the divine design, the divine development, the divine destiny, and the desire, the destruction, deliverance of Jesus' ministry and God's redemption plan. This is part three of the story of the Bible. Creation, the fall, the redemption, then the final consummation. And when we use the word divine, as I've been using it, divine uh, intention, divine appointment, divine determination, and all the other Ds that I just gave you, we're conveying that Jesus' determination to die on the cross was part of the sovereignty and providence of God. And this is one thing for review, I just want to catch you up with this, is that John Piper writes in his book, Providence, 
that God's sovereignty, as you see here, and I'm not, not on there, that God's sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that he wills. As the creator and sustainer of all things, he will do what he desires. And his providence has come to mean the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. So it's his keeping in motion and bringing to pass all that he has willed. Piper captures these two doctrines to coin the term purposeful sovereignty, meaning that all that transpires in this world comes from God's hand and that it serves a particular purpose. There is no coincidences. There are no accidents. All things happen as God has ordained. In this case, Jesus was determined to accomplish his role in redeeming all of God's children from their sin and restoring them into fellowship with the Father. That's the redemption, the redemption plan of the story. Now this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to consider the divine intention of the atonement. We want to contemplate the question of what was Jesus trying to accomplish by dying at the hands of those he created. Have you ever thought about that? That he died at the hands of those he created. He died on a wooden cross that was fashioned from a tree that he grew. And from the nails that he allowed them to invent and to use. Held down by hands they had created specially for that purpose. We want to complement that question. By doing so, I believe we'll have a greater sense of the Trinity's redemption plan that should lead us to a greater sense of worship. So with that, we're in John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at several verses, but John 19, 28 through 30. If you have your Bibles, that's great. Or if it's on your iPad or phone, whatever you might be using. If not, we do have it here on the monitor as well. But this is speaking of John's gospel and his record of what's happening on the cross. Jesus is on the cross. This is at the end of the, 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 of the, of the ninth hour. It says that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. You may want to underline that or highlight that in your Bible. It's an important term. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And so, Father, that's where we find ourselves this morning, looking back and celebrating that great feat. We think of it, we call it Good Friday. And you, why is that good? But, Lord, even in the death of your son, it was meant for your glory and for our good. And I pray all that are hearing our voice this morning will, Lord, come to, will come to know how good your death was, what your intention was. So just give us your wisdom, discernment, and let your spirit have free reign. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to take a moment to examine that phrase, it is finished. The word conveys the action of to finish or to complete, to fulfill, to be finished or to be completed, fulfilled, or perfected, to bring into maturity. Pastor John MacArthur writes that the verb here carries the idea of fulfilling one's task. And in religious context, has the idea of fulfilling one's religious obligation. It was also used as an accounting term, seeing that all things are reconciled, that the balance is reconciled. For those of you who might still balance your checkbook or reconcile, it means all things is finished. It is done, paid in full. Now, we might question then, what was the it that was finished? We need to consider that. He says it is finished. Well, what is it that was finished? What was this religious obligation? What was this reconciliation about? It would include his suffering, his pain, his ridicule and rejection at the hands of his enemies. As we've seen over the last few months, Jesus has been determined, has been determined excuse me, to fulfill the Father's redemption plan. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus prayed to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
So when Jesus comes, as we think of the incarnation, you know, the first advent when Jesus was born, even as a child, he had, a, an, a, he had an obligation or a duty to uh, fulfill. He had a task to fulfill. Jesus, at the end of his days, says, I have accomplished that work. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, writes, seen here on the, on the, on the monitor, that Jesus' knowledge that all was now complete is the awareness that all the steps that had brought him to this point of pain and impending death were in the design, were in the design of his heavenly father, and death itself was imminent. Jesus then tells us, knowing that it was time that Jesus then gave up his spirit. Again, he gave up. It wasn't, his life was not taken from him. It was given. ESV study Bible writes that the term gave up emphasizes the voluntary nature of Jesus' self-sacrifice. And it echoes the description of the death of the suffering servant found in Isaiah's prophecy. Easter is a time in which we remember, celebrate, give thanks, and worship our Savior who became our penal substitutionary vicarious sacrifice. Long term there, but we're going to break that down. The psalmist sings in Psalms 130. says, if you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What a great question as he cries out. If you were to mark or, or list my transgressions, oh, how many they would be. Who could stand before a righteous judge with all of our penalty or all of our wages, all of our sin lined up? Though inspired by Satan, instigated by the angry religious leaders, urged on by the gullible crowd, driven by the jealousy of Herod, satisfying the harsh brutality of the Roman soldiers, and finalized by the cowardice of Pilate, Jesus dies of his own voluntary power and by the will of the Father. What I want to focus on this morning is Jesus' intention in obeying, submitting, and giving himself up for us at the cross. So with it, I want to take some time and look at three things here is Jesus' intention. What was Jesus intending with the atonement in giving himself up as a substitute in our place? Number one, Jesus' intention in the atonement was to deliver us from the penalty of sin. When Jesus is on the cross, he was saying it is finished. We recognize that Jesus is, dry, is, is not trying, but is delivering us from the penalty of sin. Jesus on the death on the cross served to do that. Wayne Grumman defines sin as our failure to conform to God's moral law in our actions and our attitudes and our nature. And you've heard me speak on this, many of you, many times before. Is that we are broken people. We are sinful people. Scripture informs us that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, many of you listening to me say that, say, wait a second, but I don't, I don't feel that I'm that sinful. Yeah, I, I have some bad habits. I have some hang-ups. I have some problems. Well, the thing is, is you and I don't understand how holy our God is. And so what we want to do is we can compare ourselves to others. In this day of age, it's easy. Everyone wants to compare someone to Hitler. If they don't like you, you must be Hitler. Now it's Putin. Maybe, maybe it's, uh, you know, some other communist dictator. But the Bible tells us that we are all sinful. Maybe not to the same degree as someone else, but we also ourselves find ourselves unholy. You see, we inherited from our first parents when they rebelled against the creator in the garden. The apostle Paul writes that sin came into the world through one man and death through that sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned and that the judgment following that one trespass brought condemnation. You see, this rebellion against our creator has earned us the wrath of God. Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans, I believe it might be here on the monitor. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. 
He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There, there is our, our main issue. We, we know the truth, but we suppress the truth. Many times, most times, internally. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Think of this. We, we look, we, we build this beautiful and magnificent Hubble telescope. We send it, you know, miles and miles and miles away into space. We take pictures of galaxies and beautiful nebulas and all sorts of things. They are then uh, sent back here to earth where we ooh in all the beauty of creation. And what do we say? It all came here by accident or some big bang or some other type of thing. The very thing that God has given us to say there must be a designer if you were to walk in this morning and I had a canvas here and maybe some paint cans and paintbrushes here on the floor, you would come in and maybe it's a beautiful Easter mural. What would be your first thought? Well, who painted that? And I would say, no one painted it. I put it out all here last night. There was an earthquake here. And then when I came in this morning, it just appeared. We'd all say, you're silly. There, there's no way that can happen. Yet in the same way, we look at the beauties of the universe. We're able to look into then the, the minuscule of life through electron microscopes and others. And we find the secrets of DNA. And again, we see beautiful design, intricate design. And yet then we say, it's all accident. Or it's a big bang. Or it just happened. Or we just kick the can down the road and say, well, aliens must have did it with crystals. Who's the aliens? Where did they come from? See, if we've suppressed the truth of our creator. He has made a general revelation that directs eyes to him. And we know that people have because people throughout history have worshipped the sun, the moon, agriculture, animals. All They're looking and they're seeing. These things are blessings to us. So they're looking to someone, to something to worship, to give thanks. But they suppressed the true creator. So going back, what does he say? Because they have done this, it says they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now this seems harsh to the sensibilities of the postmodern man and woman. But we cannot escape the fact that it is appointed to man once to die. And then after this, the judgment that judgment is the eternal conscious punishment of the lake of fire. As Jonathan Edwards preached, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God who is looking at those he created and have rejected him. What we need is a savior. Unfortunately, people are looking for the wrong type of a savior. They're looking for a financial savior. And we're always looking for a political savior. We're looking for that next senator, that next governor, that next whomever to bring us out of this broken world cycle that we are in. A relationship savior, a career savior, a retirement, a satisfaction, something to bring me happiness, to fill my life with comfort and hope. And in each and every time, those fail. You see, we don't need to be delivered from financial, political, and cultural problems. They may be real, but, but those are just band-aids that we're putting on. But what you and I need to be delivered from is from the wrath of God. And that is a hard statement to hear. Why is God angry with me? There's actually a, a movie on that. I can't remember the movie. It's one of the alien prequels. And this, 
a scientist goes to a planet with these astronauts. And in it, she believes these people that they're finding are the creators, are the seed bearers of our earth and of our people. They're very tall, they're white, they're very uh, muscular. They finally wake one up. And when he wakes up, he begins to kill them. He begins to attack them. And she has already called them our gods. She says, why are you so angry with us as he's trying to destroy all of them? She cannot understand. And I think there's many of us. What do you mean God is angry with me? What do you mean God has anger towards me? Well, that's what the Bible calls us. Because of our rejection of him, because of our inherited sin, you and I are called children of disobedience. We're called vessels of his wrath. But God had made a plan to accomplish this, to save us from the wrath of God. The Father sent his son, Jesus, who in John 3.16, we know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. That's the redemption plan that Jesus is intending to accomplish is to redeem God's children, to save us from the wrath of God. Paul writes in Romans 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for whom? The good? No, he died for the bad and the ugly. The ungodly, it says. For no one will, for no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare, dare even to die. But God, listen to this, showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ loved me when I did not love him. Christ cared for me when I rejected him and rebelled against him. Paul continues to write, since therefore we have now been justified or be declared righteous by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much, much more now that we are reconciled, so we shall be saved from our life. See, you and I are not only forgiven, but we're also made right with God where we can have a good relationship, where we can have a relationship. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a big word. And many times people say, we just need to get rid of some of these words. But I want to teach you this word because it's an important word. I believe we might have this on the monitor. The basic idea of propitiation is that of appeasement or satisfaction, specifically towards God. Now, propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of the offending person and then being reconciled to them. Get this, and you, you can imagine this. This is probably easy for some of you. Think of someone who has harmed you or hurt you very badly. And maybe you've been carrying some resentment, some bitterness, or maybe it's the other way around. There's someone that is truly angry with you. Now, angry is a debt that says, you owe me. Okay? That's anytime you're angry, you're saying, you have a debt, you owe me, and you need to pay me back. You, 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 you yelled at me, you mistreated me, uh, maybe my dad left me when I was young, so I'm mad at my dad because he owes me a debt. Uh, maybe my, my wife cheated on me and she owes me a debt. My kids are just terrible, owes me a debt. Or, hey, someone, uh, you know, cut me off in traffic. They owe a debt. And so we're collecting all these debts and we're getting angry. The problem is there is no way to pay that debt. How can a, a father who has been absent most of his children's life, how could he ever repay that and make that right with his son or daughter? Maybe some of you have lived that. You really can't, can you? There's only one way to take care of that debt. This can be a brother or sister that just was treated you badly when you were young. It needs to be canceled. And it's canceled by forgiving that debt. And see, that's what Christ did for us. See, think of this way now. So think, think again. Someone you're angry with or someone that's been angry with you and you forgive them. 
All right, in the end, they say, I'm sorry, you forgive them. Now, let me ask, in that relationship, is everything okay? No, there's still going to be hard feelings. You may have trouble trusting that person. You may have a trouble being around that person because it still reminds you of it. It may be something that you just still struggle with. Now, here's the difference. See, we say that word, we forgive, but we don't, what? Forget. Well, that's not God. See, when, when Christ's intention was to deliver us by de- uh, delivering the penalty of sin, what he did with propitiation is he satisfied the anger debt that God had against us. God says, you know what, that's been canceled. And then God says he forgets. It says that he puts our sins from the east and the west. How often do the east and the west meet? They don't. The further east you go, guess what you have as you continue on? More east. And if you go west, doesn't matter how you follow Horace Greeley, you're always going to have west to you, right? As we go on. And I'll add that Jesus puts a, a no fishing sign in there. There's no fishing for sins. He doesn't bring them up again. So here's the thing with you that you can't do is you can't forget. But God can. And so not only does he forgive us our sins, which would be great. We all want to go to heaven, right? We all want our sins forgiven. But even if God just forgave us our sins, but he didn't reconcile us, we still wouldn't be able to get to heaven. And that's what he did with Christ. Christ is that not only did he forgive us our sins, but he made our relationship right. So when he sees you, he doesn't see your rebellion, your rejection, and your anger, your jealousy, your greed, so on and so forth. He sees Christ. And that's what you and I needed. Jesus' intention and atonement was to deliver us from the penalty of sin by bearing the wrath of God on our behalf And accrediting to us his righteousness. That's how it is finished. That's how reconciliation is done. Is he pays our debt and it's completed. And you and I are balanced. Number two. Jesus' intention and atonement was to deliver us from the power of sin. See, we have the penalty of sin. But there's still the power of sin. The redemption plan of the Trinity included the setting at liberty those of God's children that were oppressed. The oppression, or the oppression though, is not uh, some type of problem that you and I think of oppression today, but was our enslavement to sin. Various scripture declares, I'm going to read just a couple here. In John 8, 34, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. Galatians says that we were once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Again, in Galatians, we are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. See, you and I are enslaved. Now, again, let's go back. Today, it is more uh, a proper to say, well, you know, he has an addiction. To this or that. And now addiction is all sorts of things. Everything is an addiction today. Or it's a hang up. It's a problem. It's a bad you know, habit. Something of that nature. But in reality, it's enslavement. You're enslaved to these things. It has power and control of you. This means that we're incapable of pleasing God. And as Landon read earlier, our minds are hostile to God. You see, that's your default position. You may not know that, but your position is default. Some of you right now are just angry with God with what I'm saying. Your mind is hostile to the things I'm sharing. That that should be proof in the pudding to you that your mind in the natural state is hostile to the things of God. We were disobedient children. Scripture goes on to say that we were children of the devil under his power. Paul writes in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, without exception. 
Take your Bibles if you have it and turn to Romans 6 if you would. Share a couple passages of scripture in that good book, Romans chapter 6. But what I want you to understand is that the second intention of Jesus on that cross was to destroy the works of Satan. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, those who are enslaved. Those things that include a hold on our hearts, our mind, our affections and will. In 1 Peter, as you're still turning to Romans 6, hold that. The Apostle, Paul, or Apostle uh, Peter declares that Jesus himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It says, by his wounds we have been healed. Through the intervention of Christ at Calvary, you and I have been delivered from the power of sin and been set free. In Romans chapter 6, look at verse 4. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. Just as he died, he rose. We also die to our sins and are raised to a new life. We know that our old self, let's talk about those things that conjure up uh, malice and anger, immorality, uh, idolatry. He says, those things were crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See, you and I need to be in, uh, uh, set at liberty. We needed our, the power of sin over our life to be broken. In other words, you and I could not say no to sin. We were enslaved to it. And Jesus' intention of atonement was to deliver us from the power of sin by destroying the works of Satan and setting us free from that bondage that you and I were under. Maybe some of, some of you today are still under the bondage of Satan. You may not feel it. You say, no, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. But you do not recognize you're enslaved. You're like the circus elephant who walks around in a circle because he's chained to a little, uh, little stake in the ground. And all day he walks around that circle because that's what all he can do. But eventually the trainers can eventually take that chain off that elephant. And guess what that elephant's going to do? Does it take off? Walks in that same circle. You're like the monkey who puts his hand into a bottle trying to grab the banana, but then can't because you won't let go of the banana. That's the default setting of all of us. Thirdly, Jesus' intention and atonement was to deliver us from the presence of sin. In John chapter 10, Jesus declares that I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only in to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus' attention at Calvary was to secure a new way of life that was free from sin and a new home. Dr. Steve Lawson says that this eternal life included both the quality of our life here on earth, but also the duration of the new life. This salvation he secures includes our adoptions as sons of God, our sanctification where he makes us more like Christ and freer from sin, and a promise to glorify us and bring us into the presence of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe it might be here on the monitor, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has, called, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let me ask, have you ever seen a home like that here in the world? Anything that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? 
This is what awaits those who have chosen Christ. To those that Christ has delivered, we will be delivered from this presence of sin. Right now, you and I are living in a world in which we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin. We now can say yes to God. We can taste and see that God is good. We can enjoy the things of Scripture and obeying Christ's commandments. But yet you and I know that we still sin, do we not? If you're like me, you probably sinned several times before coming in here. And I can guarantee you, if you rode in a car with either your spouse or with some children, you've sinned on your drive over here. We know it. I had one heck of a morning, and I fought the sin, uh, uh, sin oppression every moment this morning. Is everything that we had planned kind of just didn't go right. Lord, what are you doing? And then I thought, oh, wait, that's right. God's purposely sovereign. I got to believe what I teach, right, and what I preach. It's like never ask or pray for patience, because what is God going to do? Give you something to be patient with? So I never pray for that. No, that's not true. But he calls, tells us, he gives us something imperishable, undefiled, unfading. You know, the one thing, I, I can't wait until that time where I live one moment purely for Christ with no sin. No sin. When I can look in the mirror and make eye contact with myself, when I can look at my family knowing that I love them fully and we are both truly, fully forgiven. When I no longer have to worry about having a dream that's like, what in the world happened there? I so much are looking forward to that day. This verse gives you and I courage to endure the suffering and presence of sin. As we look at what's going on in Ukraine, we look at what's going on in the world and everything that's going on, and we know that this world is broken, and we think, Lord, just fix it. And we're looking for politicians, we're looking for social influencers, we're looking for someone to make things right. There's only one Savior. This home this world is going to have a tragic end. If you're worried about climate change and those things, and, and there are many things going on, let me tell you, wait until you see what God's plans for the end of the age is. But all things will be made new. Though sin has been defeated, we recognize that as we are here on earth, that we must battle sin each and every day. Not just that sin that's from without, but that sin that's in within. Jesus has promised that he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. The Father and Son have sent the Holy Spirit who helps preserve us in this old body so that you and I might battle sin until that day that Christ comes. And may he come quickly. Amen. Maranatha. Until that day, we put our hope in the promises of God. Again, not wishful thinking, but a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. We, we do not have a worldly hope, but a godly hope. In Revelation chapter 21, do we have that, Ben? Look at that. I love this verse. This is the end of the age. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We're talking about beauty here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. God will walk again in the garden with us as he did with Adam and Eve. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And look at it. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus' attention on the cross for the atonement was to prepare for us a new home. He does that by delivering us from the presence of sin, by not only securing for us an eternal life 
in which the Holy Spirit grants us preserving grace until that day. The question we have now is, how does this relate to me today? If Jesus truly died on the cross in order to deliver me from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, what, are, what, if any, are his intentions for me? What does it matter to me? Well, I want to give you three. Jesus' intention is for us to know that we are sinners in need of a Savior. His intention is for us to know that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We were once citizens of the walking dead, but now we have received the wonderful gift of grace and are granted citizenship in the kingdom of God. Paul writes in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in the trespasses of our sin, he made us alive together with him. By grace you have been saved and raised this up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let me say, it is by grace that you are saved. There is no sacrament, there is no ordinance, there is no tradition that you can do that will make you right before God. You and I need to be declared right because of the works of Christ. There's nothing that we can do. You cannot lift one finger to deliver yourself from the presence of sin, the power of sin, or the penalty of sin. It is only by God's grace, his sovereign purpose, or purposely sovereignly reaching out and calling you and drawing you to himself. Think of it, I, I'm going to use someone else's message a little for just a moment. Alistair Begg, I don't know if you follow Twitter. This was on Twitter this last week. He has an old message, great message, about the man in the middle of the cross. Think about it. You guys know the story of Jesus on the cross. There's Jesus, he's in the middle. On one side is a thief who's cursing him. On the other is the one who says, uh, uh, you know, uh, forgive me. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember that? Could you imagine that man going to heaven, dying and going to paradise? He stands at the pearly gates and Peter comes over and says, well, or one of the angels comes and says, well, hi, uh, what's your name? Uh, da, 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 da. Well, why should I let you into my heaven? That's the question we always ask. And he says, well, uh, I don't know. He goes, well, let me ask you, what, what do you know about propitiation? I don't know. I've never heard of the word. Well, what do you know about the doctrine of justification? I, I don't know. Oh, what have you done to, to earn your way into here? Well, I've done nothing. Okay, wait, let, let me go get my, my supervisor. He comes in and says, why in the world are you here? Why in the world do you think you can give an heaven? This man, were you baptized? No. Were you a member of a church? No. Did you give to church? No. No, all I did was, I was a thief. I died on the cross. Well, why in the world should I let you here in heaven? I don't know. The man in the middle said I could come. The man on the middle of the cross said you could come. It's by grace. There is nothing that you can do. He had to deliver us. And so you and I need to know that, that we cannot earn our way into heaven. Number two, Jesus' intention for us is to do those things he has commanded us to do. His last words was all authority has been given unto me for you to go and make disciples, to baptize them, and to command them to do everything that I've commanded you to do. So Jesus' intention is for us as disciples is to follow him, is to imitate Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow Christ, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, follow him. Though we are not saved by good works, we are saved to do good works. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then in Titus, Jesus said that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What are those good works? Loving God. And loving our neighbors as ourselves. Those are two things. It sums up all the law. And let me share you. Anytime you sin, you are not loving God and you are not loving yourself. Every sin means that you are not loving God and you're not loving yourself. Or loving your neighbors. 
This is what God has called us to do. And then number three, Jesus' attention is for us to be sanctified by pursuing holiness. It's to know, to do, and to be are the three things. Jesus' attention for us is to be sanctified, to know that we are sinners, to do the things he's commanded, and to be sanctified. That means being more like Christ and freer from sin. Scripture describes us as a new creation where the old has passed away and the old has, or the, the new has come. We are to reflect the Spirit as we bear the fruits of His preserving grace. Paul writes in Colossians that we are to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving. Peter commands the children of God, as you see on the monitor, is to prepare our minds for action. Being sober-minded, we're to set our hope on the grace that we brought to us, that not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But as He who has called us to be holy, we are to be Holy. There should be something different about those that Jesus has delivered in his atonement. Why? Because he has broken the power of sin in our lives. So I come here in closing. Let me first speak to those of you who are believers, those of you who have accepted Christ. You've repented and put your trust in him. The Bible commands us to hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. God encourages us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Continue in the hope you were called, knowing that you've been delivered from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. For the seeker, maybe you're here and you're just like, I, I think I want to know more about God. Your response to God's word is to repent, which means to recognize that you are a sinner and you need a savior and that you cannot earn it. And repent means to do a, a 185 or 180. Don't do a 185. That puts you a little bit. Do a 180. You're going one way, you're going the other. It's a change of mind. I, yeah, I was terrible in geometry. I actually skipped that in, in actually in high school. I took it when Emily took geometry in high school. I, I had to retake it. I, I took it then. I didn't have to retake it. I don't even know where I'm at now. But repent means to do a 180. It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's a change of, of, of your choice and your will. It means that I recognize that I need a Savior. And you turn your life and say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trusting that God accepted Christ's work. There is nothing that I can add. There is nothing that I can do for my own salvation, but trust that God accepts it. That's your response this morning. The Bible gives you the good news that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? And that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you do so this morning? There's no little prayer you have to say that's a special prayer. There's no type of confession you need. It's just saying, Lord, I just want to choose you. Lord, I choose you. I want to follow you. If that's your decision this morning, I'd pray that you just put that on that little sheet if you've filled out a sheet for us this morning or let me know, let Randy or Landon know. We'd love to share with you the next step. But there may be some of you that are skeptics. You're still not quite sure. Let me ask, what's your hope based on? Where do you find truth? What is it that you're holding on to give you value to points you in the right direction. Scripture tells us that it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I pray that you would recognize that today is the day of salvation. If you're struggling, then just lift up a prayer, Lord, help me understand. The Lord, I just want to, I, I just, I have a hard time. God will hear an earnest prayer for clarity. You may still have questions. You're still looking for answers. Begin, the hope for the believer is that now we see in a mirror dimly, kind of darkly, we don't see very well. But then one day we will be face to face with God. Scripture says, now I know in part 
But then I shall fully know, even as I've been fully known. You see, the apostle Peter writes that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or made known in the last days for the sake of, the, of you who, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What's your faith and hope in? See, you must deal with Jesus and the cross. You cannot escape it. No matter what you believe in, what political theory, what philosophy, what psychology, you still have to answer about Jesus and his intention on the cross. So today I implore you to respond by trusting the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ to be right with God. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know for a surety. The great Puritan pastor, Matthew uh, Henry, he writes this, if I can just close with this quote. He writes, it is finished, quoting the words of Christ. He says, the work of man's redemption is now completed. A full satisfaction is made to the justice of God. A fatal blow given to the power of Satan. A fountain of grace open that shall ever flow. A foundation of peace and happiness laid that shall never fail. That's what you and I need. That was Jesus' intention, intention when he said, it is finished. Let it be finished for you as well this morning. Amen? Amen. With every head bowed and every head closed, I'm going to ask Randy and then the worship team to come up. We're just going to take a moment to pause and just consider the words that I gave you through Scripture, not just my words, but the words of Scripture. Once you consider... Who is Jesus? What does he accomplish? What does it matter? Take some time today, this week, to pray and ask, God, just speak to me. If you are there, then give me truth. And then would you respond to the Holy Spirit's work and call as he draws you to himself. And may God bless you and bring him to himself. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.